0: Luke chapter 1. I'm going to be starting in verse 26. This is what it says. It says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, And he came and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. That's God's word. On August 31st, 2005, there was a photographer, his name was Jim Watson, on board Air Force One, and he snapped a photo of then-president George W. Bush. I'm curious to, to know if, I, if any of you guys recognize just from those cues what this photograph was. It was widely disseminated. Lots and lots of people saw it. And it was kind of a turning point in the, um, in the presidency of Bush. In the image, Bush is seated in his presidential plane, presumably high above the ground. Um, the cabin of the plane is mostly dim or dark, and he's looking out the window. There's light flooding in from the window, kind of a dramatic lighting. And he's looking out the window, down and out, and he has a, an expression on his face, of concerned focus. He's focused on what's going on out that window. And then his, his right hand, you can kind of barely see it, it's in the shadows, but it's clenched in a fist. Kind of a picture of leadership. It's a, it's a um, very well composed, very professionally done photograph. It's actually a really nice looking, looking shot. But it was very, very poorly received. It's considered to be a turning point in the presidency of George W. Bush. After that, um, his approval ratings kind of plummeted um, and they never really recovered. And there were other things going on at the time that I'm sure contributed to that. But that picture kind of became a symbol of that turning point, became a symbol of, of the Bush presidency in, the, in his uh, second administration. So why? Why was it so poorly received? We know from context, 2005, he was looking down on the wreckage caused by Hurricane Katrina. He was flying over Louisiana. He was coming back from vacation in Texas, and he was flying up to Washington, D.C., and um, he had the plane reroute to go so that he could survey the, the damage done by Hurricane Katrina. And people hated that photograph. It was awful, so why? Well, it was because of expectations. The expectation of a president when we have a national tragedy, when we have something like this going on, when we have an environmental or a, a, um, a weather catastrophe, the expectation is for the president to get to land the plane, to get the pilot to land the plane, and to get out and start walking around with the people, with the people who are suffering. Um, Bush didn't do that. Presidents since him have learned from his, his PR mistake, his public relations mistake, and uh, just recently, Biden was walking around in Kentucky posing for photographs and, um, and promising the nation's resources to, uh, to restore the damage that's there. But even if we know, regardless of the fact that we know it's a PR stunt, regardless of the fact that we know presidents are always just trying to uh, boost their approval ratings, maybe that's cynical of me, I don't know, but even knowing that we as human beings have a desperate need for a figure who is not only above everything, and reigns over everything, but who is also down in the wreckage with us. We need that kind of a leader. We need that kind of a God. Most of the time in our lives, we don't get to see what goes on in the heavenly realm. Even in Scripture, most of the time, the, um, what's happening behind the scenes, what's happening behind the physical is veiled to us. We can see the effects of it in the physical world as we read Scripture. But even in places like Daniel and Revelation where there's, um, where there's all of these images and visions and things like that, most of the, a, lot of, a lot of that revolves around symbolism. But in this particular passage, there's a very concrete event that happens there's this heavenly being who comes from the throne world from sorry from the throne room of God into the world of the story and meets with a young woman named Mary the things that are invisibly shaping the world become visibly present for just a moment just a, just a small glimpse and it's a short passage and the angel goes away. And he's also spoken to Zechariah by this time and he'll go speak to the shepherds after this or some angel will. Um, but at this point, we get to see the curtain pulled back just a little bit to see what's going on. In Gabriel, it's, it says earlier in this passage, his job was to, sta- was to stand in the very presence of God himself. That was his job description. And he comes to stand in the presence of God. Of this young woman, who's kind of nondescript, unmarried, betrothed woman, Mary, and that fact in and of itself is truly remarkable—that someone would come from the throne room to greet her. the the the, uh, the passage in our translations it says, um, "Greetings, O favored one. The Lord, the Lord is with you." That That word greetings is just full of joy. It's like it is great to see you, all rolled into one one word. The the Greek kind of mashes it all together. This there's this excitement that this angel of God is showing at seeing Mary. And in the news that he's about to proclaim, he calls her the favored one. You are a receiver of grace. You're a receiver of grace, Mary. I'm coming to tell you about that. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. And understandably so. She's afraid. She was about to marry this working class guy, medium sized town. I mean, sure, he was a descendant of an old royal family, but there have been like five dynasties that have come and gone since then. And uh, now, you know, 500 years have passed since anybody in his family has really been important. I guess Zerubbabel would have been the last one. So, why is this angel showing up now? And the next part of the passage, the angel gives um, a message that's even more shocking. You are going to have a son, and he will be the son of God, the heir to the throne of God's people. So not only has this glorious being, Gabriel, come with a message from the throne of God himself, but the content of the message is that the son of God himself the heir to the throne of everything is about to be born, and Mary has been chosen to carry him. And this is how God is going to work. He does not stay away, but he is coming down to the gritty realities of life on earth to be with his people, to be with you and with me and with his disciples back then. He doesn't stay up in this heavenly Air Force One gazing down on the miseries of his people. Rather, the power of the Most High, the Holy Spirit, came and overshadowed this normal young woman and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And he is called Holy, the Son of the Most High. Now, where we are right now, Christ has ascended into heaven. He's no longer visibly with us. But that same Holy Spirit that united him to Mary in his conception is here. The power of the Most High is in the process of coming upon us as believers. He is here. God has come. But why does that matter? You know? Is God pulling a political stunt like each of the presidents since Bush, walking around for a photo op, hanging out? I mean, we can take comfort in the fact that God is here only if he is doing something, right? I mean, it's great that uh, that if he came and he's commiserating and empath- uh, empathizing, um, even if he's sharing joy, it's all good news. That's all fine, but we know we need more than that. We know we need a Savior who's actually coming to accomplish something. So, what is he doing in this world? We'll look again at the second half of uh, verse thirty-two in verse 33 second half it says and the lord god will give him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and his kingdom and of his kingdom there will be no end christ did not just come to be with us he did not just come to give us positive feelings in the midst of our darkness and distraction he came to establish the kingdom of his father and all the authority that God had given him. He came as a baby and he came in humility, but he came to rule. He grew up into a man who would control things. ascended into heaven. So what does that look like? What does it look like that Christ is reigning from heaven and he's ruling on his throne? What does it look like that his kingdom is being established, you know, because Several hundred years after he ascended into heaven, uh, the Romans were still in control of that part of the world and all over the world since then, there have been regimes that have come and gone. Different political leaders have risen and fallen, have come and they've died, most of them without any reference to Christ. So what does it mean then that Christ has come to reign? That he's establishing his kingdom We'll look down. This is a little bit after our passage, but a little bit further on. If you look down in the passage to verses 51 and through 53, um, this is after Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth and they're worshiping together. And, it says, and she says this, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. All of these things are things that Jesus did while he was walking around here on earth. He was establishing his kingdom in these actions, in these tremendously powerful, mighty actions that he performed. It says here, you know, he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And Jesus scattered. He went into the temple, and he saw people who were desecrating that place, and he scattered them. The zeal, the Lord of hosts, consumed him to do that. It says here that um, that he has exalted those of humble estate. And he took chose humble fishermen, men who had no clout in their society, and probably not much of a future to look forward to beyond just work and life and family, and he made them his disciples and his apostles. They were the ones who were going to guide his church in that humility and that weakness that he chose. And it says that he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He fed 5,000 of his disciples. And the rich young ruler went away sad because he could not impress God. He did all of these things first and foremost to prove to the world who he was, to prove that he was God and that he was coming to save. But he also did them out of compassion. It says a couple of times in Matthew that, you know, Jesus saw someone, he heard them, he had compassion on them, and he healed them for the sake of healing them, for the sake of showing that compassion. Because that's what love does. It sees a need in the beloved person or in the people, and it works. It acts to meet that need. It steps out to do that. And with these actions, Christ was establishing a kingdom of justice and mercy and love and truth. So he accomplished these things that Mary sings about to prove who he was, and out of sheer compassion and zeal, he also accomplished them as an example to his people, the church. If you turn over to. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Turn over to Philippians 2. I'll be reading. Uh, somewhere in that chapter. I lost my place in my notes. But Philippians 2, we will start in. Verse five, it says this, it says, "'Have this mind among yourselves, "'which was yours in Christ Jesus, "'who, though he was in the form of God, "'did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped "'or to be held onto, but emptied himself, "'taking the form of a a servant. "'Being born in the likeness of men "'and being found in human form, he humbled himself, "'by becoming obedient to the point of death, "'even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Back to just to focus in on verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It also says elsewhere, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Christ calls on on his disciples, on his followers, to imitate him in all of these things. He calls on us to lay down our lives as he laid down his life. And now God is driving his mission in the world through his church. He is establishing his reign, and as he does this, he lets us share in both his humility and his power to do that. Turn over to 1 Corinthians one twenty six, One more passage. Actually, there are going to be a couple more passages, but I'll have you flip around a lot. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. God is growing and establishing his kingdom in the same way that he sent his Son. It is not through worldly wisdom or power or strength, that he's growing his church. It's not through these things that he's growing his rule on this earth. Rather, it is through a humility that has nothing else to boast in but God. It is through that weakness. Now, it's important to remember as we approach Christmas that Jesus' glory will not always be hidden. When he came the first time, he came concealed. His glory was concealed. As a baby, the church grew, his kingdom grew inconspicuously. A lot of people didn't even take notice at first. In the midst of the powers that opposed it or attempted to be indifferent to it, it continued to grow and has continued to grow all this time. But when Christ returns to establish his kingdom in its fullness, there will be no indifference. The opposition to it will be crushed. Jesus' first coming was in humiliation. His second coming will be in exaltation. His first coming was hidden in a little town in a political backwater in the eastern Mediterranean. His second coming will be global, indeed universal. So we know that Christ is with us know that he is building his kingdom on this earth? Well, what are we supposed to do with that? Where do we go with that? Well, I think we can take a cue from Mary's response. She's commended for her response a little bit later in the, in the chapter here. The first thing, her first response, and I think this is significant, was that she was troubled. She was deeply troubled by this news of this son coming to reign in the kingdom and herself. And I can't blame her. It's kind of weird. She was afraid. Gabriel had to tell her and encourage her not to be afraid, and she tried to figure out what was going on. The courtroom of heaven had opened, and an emissary had come proclaiming God's favor. She did not take it lightly. She may have been afraid of Gabriel himself, but this text specifically says that she was troubled at the saying It's so easy for us to act flippantly with the Word of God, for us to lose the ability to be troubled by it. There's so many messages in our world today. There's so many things coming at us. Some of them are troubling. Some of them are enticing. Some of them we have to catalog. Many of the messages that we receive, we just have to throw away. A lot of... A lot of the messages we receive either in text or driving down the road, most of them are, are trying to sell us something. And it's of utmost importance that we not treat the Word of God this way. These are not some ancient Near Eastern dudes who are trying to sell you on a better way of life. This is not some, some life hack. This is the Word of God, and Mary saw it that way. We're tempted to treat the Bible that way. We cannot let it fail to trouble us at times. Turn over one more time, and the last passage we'll go to. This will be uh, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Says this, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels has proved reliable, to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The message that has been delivered to us was delivered first by angels, parts of the Old Testament and here, and then by God himself through Jesus Christ. It is not to be regarded lightly. There's real power. And condemnation and punishment and discipline and wrath involved, whole nations have been brought under condemnation because of what's written here. So, work to discern the grace of God because God's not Santa Claus. And He's not some conscientious lover in a bar who is worried about making unwanted advances. He wants to rule in your life and reign there through His Word. Well, the second thing that Mary did is she believed and accepted the word. She affirmed what the angel had told her. She believed in Christ. In verse 38, she responds to the weirdest true message that possibly anyone has ever received. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then Elizabeth, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, down in verse 45, says this: "And blessed is she who believed, there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord." Now, certainly, I want to be clear that veneration of Mary or any other human is is forbidden, and there is even some indication that Mary might have drifted away from this from a time later on in the Gospels. But here, she's commended because she believed. She believed, and so believe. Sin separate us from God. Christ's coming, his death, burial, and resurrection have dealt with sin, and so believe in him. Trust in Christ. It is not enough to have just an emotional response to what God is telling us. It is not enough to be just troubled or joyous we must also trust and submit to the gospel. The parts we like are naturally comforting to us. The parts we dislike, and there will always be those, we are challenged by until our affections are brought into conformity with our beliefs. Until our affections are brought into conformity with what is true. Well, the third thing Mary does is to go and find someone she could confide in and they rejoice together. It says in verse 39 and 40, I'll read it again, In those days Mary arose, went to the hill country, in haste to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. She knows from the angel that there is someone else who is experiencing the same miracle that she experienced. And so she takes off. She goes and she finds that person and they worship together. It's a tremendously beautiful passage that follows this with uh, first what Elizabeth says and then the, the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So rejoice, church. This is the gospel. Christ has come. Christ is building his kingdom. Christ will come again. Follow your Savior. Don't trust in the wise and the powerful. They will disappoint you. Rather, exalt the humble. Provide food for the hungry. Work to heal the sick and to show mercy. This is what we celebrate, and this is what we live out as the kingdom of God is spreading throughout the world. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for coming. Thank you for bringing your light and your gospel and your grace into the world, Lord. I pray that you would convict our hearts. I pray that you would continue your ministry of healing. I pray that you would draw us and all of our affections into conformity with you and with what you've done. Pray, Lord, as we go out of here, we'll remember to rejoice not only. In the baby that came, but also in the God who reigns over humanity. Lord, I pray that you'd give us rest today, enjoyment in this time of year, in Jesus' name. Amen.